Isaiah chapter 50. We're going to look at first the first 10 verses. The word that the Lord spoke against Babylon and against the land of the Chaldeans by Jeremiah the prophet. Declare among the nations. Proclaim and set up a standard. Proclaim. Do not conceal it. Say, Babylon is taken. Bel is shamed. Merodah is broken in pieces. Her idols are humiliated. Her pieces are broken in her images are broken in pieces for out of the north. A nation comes up against her, which shall make her land desolate and no one shall dwell therein. They shall move. They shall depart both man and beast in those days. And in that time, says the Lord, the children of Israel shall come and the children of Judah together With continual weeping they shall come and seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion with their faces toward it saying, come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that will not be forgotten. My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray. They have turned them away on the mountains. They have gone from mountain to hill. They have forgotten their resting place. All who found them have devoured them. And their adversaries said, we have not offended because they have sinned against the Lord, the habitation of justice, the Lord, the hope of their fathers. Move from the midst of Babylon. Go out of the land of the Chaldeans. And be like the rams before the flocks. For behold, I will raise and cause to come up against Babylon an assembly of great nations from the north country. And they shall array themselves against her. From there she shall be captured. Their arrows shall be like those of an expert warrior. None shall return in vain. And Chaldea shall become plunder. All who plunder her shall be satisfied, says the Lord. The beginning of Jeremiah consisted of a series of prophecies against Judah and Jerusalem. The book closes with a series of prophecies against the surrounding nations. Egypt to the north, Elam, um, Moab, Ammon, all of the little nation states that surrounded Israel. And now he's going to focus on the future of Babylon in chapters 50 and 51. The chapter is both a declaration by God, but then the declaration sometimes becomes what we would call a conversation, a conversation with the Jewish people in the Bible. Babylon is a geographical location, but it also becomes a type and a picture of the world's evil system of rebellion and opposition to God. And so sometimes in the Bible, Babylon is a city. But sometimes Babylon is a frame of mind and a condition of the heart. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. Once again, the Lord warns that God will judge Babylon. The Lord will execute judgment for a number of reasons, not least of which is because they're evil and brutal because of their false gods and their false systems of thinking because of their active opposition to the person of God and the plan of God and the promises of God and the people of God. And in order to set his people free and return to the land of promise, he is going to judge them. And later in the chapter, because Babylon has defied, opposed and resisted the plans and the purposes of God, they must be judged. But one of the things that you have to understand, those of you who've been following along in the book of Jeremiah, remember, Jeremiah has told Judah and Jerusalem over and over again Babylon's coming they're going to destroy you and you need to give up you need to surrender why is that important that you remember that because remember many of the religious leaders and the people of Judah and Jerusalem thought of Jeremiah as a traitor you love Babylon more than you love Israel 
You love Babylon more than you love Judah. You love Babylon more than you love Jerusalem. And in chapter 50, Jeremiah is making it abundantly clear exactly where his love and his loyalty lies. The reason why he has proclaimed the word of God to the people of Judah and Jerusalem is because the judgment that was coming was ordained of God. And in order to spare people, he was trying to save not just hundreds of lives. Not just thousands of lives, but hundreds of thousands of lives of people who would die under the most brutal of circumstances. Jeremiah has hammered home the the message. The nations and all the occupants of the nations will experience the judgment of God. All nations, all people will stand before God. People will give an account of what they have done on the earth. What will happen to the people who have ignored God, refused God, failed to honor the revelation of God, who have persecuted the people of God, who have rejected the promises of God? Over and over again, we understand something. All the nations that fail to honor God and all the nations that fail to honor God's Messiah will face punishment. And by the way, This frightening warning is emphasized in Mark, the 13th chapter, which we're going to be looking at on Sunday. And Matthew, the 25th chapter, verses 31 through 46. Some of you are familiar with the passage where Jesus says, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats and he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. Don't you think that's strange? That the right, the right are the saved people and the left, the left, well, I'll let you use your own imagination. In the New Testament, Jesus said in Matthew twelve thirty, he that is not with me is against me. It was the British political leader, Aneurin Bevan, who wrote, We know what happens to people who stay in the middle of the road. They get run over. You know what? The Lord invites us to pick a side. Pick a side. Pick a side. Are you going to choose righteousness or unrighteousness? Are you going to choose purity or impurity? Are you going to, what are you going to choose? Make a choice. Take a side. Vance Havner wrote, after all, we are not judged so much by how many sins we've committed, but how much light we have rejected. I want you to think about that for just a moment. Particularly if you're sitting there and you're wondering, I wonder if God is going to judge me on the basis of my sin. Make no mistake about it. He will. But remember, your sin issue has been satisfied in the person of Jesus Christ. Or it hasn't. And then you are in big trouble. Jeremiah predicts that Babylon will fall. But Israel will be saved. And I want you to think about that, particularly for the religious people who accused Jeremiah of being a traitor and a hater of Israel. And so in this chapter, he goes, no, Babylon will eventually fall. Israel will eventually be saved. Look again in verse One, the word that the Lord spoke against Babylon and against the land of the Chaldeans by Jeremiah, the prophet. Jeremiah devotes 121 verses to the future of nine nations and 44 verses to the defeat and destruction of Jerusalem. Now, if you add up the verses in chapter 50 and 51, Jeremiah devotes 110 verses to the fall of Babylon. 
In the Bible, Babylon stands in stark contrast against Jerusalem. And that's part of where I think you need to begin to think about this. Because, because when you read about Babylon in the Bible, there's only one city that's mentioned more often in the whole Bible than Babylon. And that's the city of Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem is seen as the city of God. Babylon is seen as the city of man. Jerusalem is the holy capital of David. Babylon is the central city of humanity that stands in opposition to God and the things of God. Babel, remember, means the gate of God, but it's close to another Hebrew word, Balal. And that is the word confusion. And of course, Many of you who are familiar with the Bible know about Genesis and you know about Genesis chapter 10 and you understand about the Tower of Babel and the confounding and the confusing of human languages in Genesis chapter 11. The founder of Babylon was a man named Nimrod and he's found in Genesis chapter 10 verse 10. He's called in Genesis a mighty hunter before the Lord in in Genesis chapter 11 verse 9. Many Bible teachers see that and they go, well, what does that mean? He's a mighty hunter before the Lord. In order to understand even the meaning of the text, you have to understand what they meant by a hunter. We know from both Babylonian culture and from Assyrian culture, Assyrian and Babylonian kings would hunt big game. Some of you understand what it means to be a big game hunter. Lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. But see, what would happen is they would capture animals, large beasts of prey, and they would engage in hunting rituals. And in the hunting rituals, they would have tigers and lions and bears and and difficult animals to defeat, if you will. But see, they would hunt publicly and ritually. As a matter of fact, they would take lions and they would cultivate these lions and then they would prod the lions to attack the king and the king would be in a chariot and he would have a spear or a bow and through through superior brain power and superior technology. And because of their deep devotion to their gods and goddesses, they saw that their ability to subject these wild, vicious beasts. As a sign that they were superior. That's the whole point. He was a great hunter. What it means is he's a mighty rebel against the Lord. In other words, what he is doing is he's asserting his technology and his intellectuality. And because he's so intelligent and because he's so technologically proficient, he doesn't really need the God of the Bible. That's the point. So Babel and Babylon became a word that personified, embodied, symbolized rebellion against God. So Babel and Babylon, by the way, are the place of firsts. This is where the first human beings come from. Most scholars believe that between the Tigris and the Euphrates in that area called Eden, this is where man and woman were created. This is where they sin in Genesis chapter three, three. This is where the first murder takes place in Genesis chapter four. This is the first rebellion in Genesis chapter 11. In, in 1760 B.C., Hammurabi conquers the Tigris Euphrates Valley. He makes the city of Babylon his capital. Most scholars, not even Bible scholars, but people who are familiar with archaeology and history, believe that it is in Babylon where people first invent writing. And do you know why they invent writing? Because it's in Babylon where the concept of personal property first comes to being. And in order to have first personal property, you have to establish boundaries. And in order to establish boundaries, you have to have law. And so Babylon becomes the place where human beings first establish law. They first establish government. They first establish writing. Why is all of this stuff important? Because in Babylon, this is where the first school is. This is where the first bicameral Congress takes place. And in the last book in the Bible... In Revelation chapter 17 and in Revelation chapter 18 and in Revelation chapter 19, Babylon the Great is revisited 
with all that it encompasses and all that it symbolizes the anti-God system that controls the world. It's the idea of there is a government and there's a group of people who stand in opposition to God. That's the idea. As a matter of fact, Warren Wiersbe points out the parallels between Jeremiah chapter 50 and 51 and Revelation chapter 17 and chapter 18. He writes, quote, Jeremiah wrote this prophecy during the fourth year of Zedekiah. That's 594 to 593 B.C. Gave the scroll to Baruch's brother, Sariah, to read in Babylon and then throw it into the Euphrates River. We'll see that in Jeremiah chapter 51, verses 59 through 64. Since Sariah was an officer in Zedekiah's cabinet, he had access to what you and I would call diplomatic privileges. He would have had access to the courts of Babylon and would have been accorded official diplomatic respect. This would have been the last of Jeremiah's action sermons performed without Jeremiah, symbolizing the complete destruction of the great Babylonian Empire. In other words, he writes the pronouncement of judgment against them and then orders that the judgment be thrown into the Euphrates, making sure that it is a covenant that will be sealed to the end of time. So the Lord will speak to and about Babylon and he will speak to his prophet. He'll speak to the invading army. He'll speak to the exiles of Judah in Babylon. Now, I want you to think about it. And I've told you about this before. Remember, this book is carried into Babylon and read by Ezekiel and by Daniel. The same book that you are reading. Ezekiel and Daniel would have opened the scroll and they would have learned about this judgment. There are three broad declarations that are given in chapters 50 through 51. He declares war on Babylon in verses 1 through 28. God assembles the armies against Babylon in, in chapter 50 verses 29 all the way to chapter 51 through Verse 26, and then God announces victory over Babylon in uh, chapter 51, verses 27 and 28. So when Jeremiah writes the prophecy, the capture of Babylon by the Medes and the Persians is still off in the distance. And by the way, in history, our history, but their prophecy, the Medes and the Persians will capture the city of Babylon. With the least amount of bloodshed imaginable, Babylon won't be destroyed. The Medes and the Persians will capture the city in 538 B.C. And, and again, if you want cross-references, you can look at Daniel chapter 5. Cyrus will issue a decree that the Jews are able to return to their ancestral homeland. We find that in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Then there, the return, the return of the captives and the exiles from Babylon will go in a series of waves, three stages. Um, in 538, Ezra chapters 1 through 6, 458, Ezra 7 through 10, and then 444 B.C. That's the whole book of Nehemiah. And so if you're thinking, how do, do they go back? They go back in a series of waves over a period of time. And the future of Babylon and its ultimate extinction is not the right word, but devastation is the right word. In 330 B.C., Alexander the Great, this is after the Medes and the Persians, and then Alexander the Great will come. He will capture the city. He will break down the walls. He will reduce it to, to rubble. He will take all of the treasure that Babylon has captured, all of it. He has so much treasure that he, he, he can't even haul it all. Alexander the Great will take mules loaded with gold and silver and give them to boys, Bedouins, out in the middle of nowhere. Because guess what? He just doesn't have the ability to transport all the loot. Can you imagine having so much money that the, that the, that the best thing that you can do is just leave it behind because you just have so much of it? That's what's going to happen. 
And so. This has caused a lot of scholars to think that the ultimate ruin of Babylon mentioned in Revelation chapter 17 and 18. It's possible. That we could see what we call modern Iraq and Iran, or at least the southern part of Iran and the northern part of Iraq, experience. You've heard about the Arab Spring. It's like a second wind that's taking place. I'm going to suggest to you that there is a strong possibility that there might be a temporary peace in the Middle East that results not just in an expansion of Israel, but even a time of fiscal prosperity that will take place in Iraq and possibly the southern part of Iran. But we're going to talk more about that when I talk about the wars leading up to the end of the world. And so in verse 2 it says, Declare among the nations, proclaim and set up a standard. Proclaim, do not conceal it. Say, Babylon is taken, Bel is shamed, Merodok is broken in pieces. Her idols are humiliated, her images are broken in pieces. Now... Babylon, and and James, we might put up the image of Babylon. This is the Babylonian Empire. You can see the Mediterranean Sea to the left. You can see um, where the Babylonian Empire basically occupies. You see the Euphrates River. You see the Tigris River. You see Israel, Jordan, Syria, modern Iraq. This is sort of the landscape of the entire Babylonian Empire. And... When he says, declare among the nations, proclaim and set up a standard, proclaim, do not conceal it. There's nothing mysterious about this judgment. It is absolutely powerful, positive, unmistakable. And he says, proclaim it. Don't hide any of the facts. Say Babylon is taken. Bel is shamed. Meridoc is broken in pieces. Her idols are humiliated. Her chief images are broken in pieces. And by the way, the chief deity of Babylon was Bel, also known as Baal, also spelled Merodach. You can see it in verse two. Merodach, that's the Hebrew spelling of the word Marduk. And we're going to put up a couple of images. This is the image of the deity that they worship. And in their way of thinking, he was the Babylonian sun god, Enlil. In in the Babylonian culture, he was called, in the Sumerian culture, he was called Enlil, or the storm god. Now, this is an even earlier version, and you can see this is a date palm, but if you look to the left, this is an early image of Enlil or Merodach. He kind of looks like Goat Boy from Saturday Night Live. In their theology, in their way of thinking about this particular deity, he was, in their, according to their mythology, he was the mediator to the creator of the heavens and the earth. Enlil was also the god of the weather. According to the Sumerians, he helped create the humans, but then he got tired of their noise, and then he tried to kill them by sending a flood. A mortal known as Utnapishtim survived the flood through the help of another god, Ea, and was made immortal by Enlil after Enlil's initial fury. Now, what does all of this have to do with anything? In other words... The God was a corruption of the revelation of God that was given in the Bible. And you'll notice that a lot of the Mesopotamian, Sumerian, Babylonian myths were perversions, distortions of the revelation that had been given by God. What's interesting about verse two, he says, say Babylon is taken. Bel is shamed. He says, proclaim it, do not conceal it. Her idols are humiliated. The word translated idols is a Hebrew word that means wooden blocks, but more properly it means a log. It it comes from a verb which means to roll. And if you've ever seen a tree that's been cut down, you know, it looks like a log. And so... 
The idea is it rolls like logs. The whole point is that the Lord is making the statement. These aren't real. They're just pieces of wood. And by the way, when it says Merodach is broken in pieces. Her idols are humiliated. Her images are broken in pieces. (laughs) The word images translates from the Hebrew word. Dung pellets. I'm trying to do this in the most age appropriate way. I'll be honest. The literal translation, in my view, looks like balls of excrement. I think you all know what that means. Her images are balls of excrement. And again, what's really interesting about this visual that's given, it gives us an idea of exactly what God's thinking is about these fake deities, these phony deities. And and think about it. God is saying, I'm God. They're not God. And think about the, the surrounding nations. Do you remember in Egypt, they had a calf God. Do you remember in Ammon and Edom? They have all of these different deities vying for their affection, vying for friendship and relationship. And the Lord is making it abundantly clear. Guess what? They're not real. They can't help you. It says in verse three, for out of the north, a nation comes up against her, which shall make her land desolate and no one shall dwell therein. They shall move. They shall depart both man and beast. By the way, this is the same direction that the invading armies of Judah and Jerusalem experienced when the Babylonians came and consumed them. And the Lord is saying, hey, guess what? Just like you came from the north, consumed Judah and Jerusalem, there's going to be somebody who's going to come out of your north place and make you desolate. And no one's going to be able to occupy that place. They shall move. They shall depart, both man and beast. In other words, this war and this desolation is going to create a mass migration of both man and beast. Verse 4, in those days and in that time, says the Lord, the children of Israel shall come. They and the children of Judah together with continual weeping, they shall come and seek the Lord, their God. Part of the the prophecy is basically making a statement. And the statement is that the judgment that God is going to bring on Babylon is going to create the opportunity for those who are enslaved, those who are captive, those who are exiled. It's going to be an opportunity for them to return to God. And see, sometimes we, we, we don't understand that sometimes when God allows a judgment to take place, that one person's judgment becomes another person's opportunity to experience forgiveness and freedom and a right relationship with God and reconciliation to God. And that's what it says in those days. And in that time, says the Lord, the children of Israel shall come. By the way, what happened to the children of Israel? The Assyrians had come in the 7th century B.C. and transported them far away. The invasion and the overthrow of Babylon will be the tool that God uses to liberate a divided people. Remember, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom had divided. And this is a remarkable prophecy. Out of the discipline, out of the judgment, out of the captivity... The northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah are reunited in repentance, in the desire to enter into an unending covenant with the Lord. Now, remember what I talked about, that prophecy is sometimes like two horizons. And so here is Jeremiah making a declaration that Babylon will, in fact, be judged and a wave of exiles will return to the land and the divided country will become temporarily a united country. But we know that the Romans will later come in and they will destroy the city of Jerusalem. The Jews will once again be scattered. But we've seen. Even in recent history. Jews returning from every corner of the globe, returning to Israel. When I was interviewed by CNN, they said, they asked me questions about foreign policy. 
they asked about Jerusalem. And I said, you know, one of the great privileges I have as a pastor is I get to travel in the Middle East quite frequently. And I love to go to Jerusalem and Israel every year. And the last time that I was there, I remember I was having a conversation and with the, the bus driver who was driving our bus. And I said, if I'm elected president of the United States, my first thing that I will do, my first act as president of the United States is I will declare Jerusalem to be the full, free, undivided capital of Israel forever. And the bus driver turned around and said, I'm voting for you. It might be edited. But if you see me say that on CNN, well, it's true. I did say that. The Lord gives reasons. See, now I want you to understand this. Babylon is being judged for her wickedness and her rebellion and her disobedience. Babylon is being judged because God wants to liberate his people. And guess what? That's why this world is actively being judged by God. There's a reason why. It's because God wants his people free and safe and liberated from from the chains that bind us. And so in verse five, it says they shall ask the way to Zion with their faces toward it, saying, come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that will not be forgotten. In other words, the picture is a group of people who are leaving the place of captivity and exile and they place their faces toward the place where they belong in God's land. And guess what? That's what happens too when you get liberated from this world. You start to look in the direction of heaven. For the Jews, it's the promised land. But for Christians, it's the person of Jesus Christ. This is why God is constantly, constantly beckoning you, urging you to join in friendship and fellowship with Jesus And so when he says, come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that will not be broken. This perpetual covenant is the everlasting covenant, one that cannot be broken or forgotten. Where have we seen that before? Do you remember in Jeremiah chapter 32? Turn back there to verse 40. Where the Lord says, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. That I will not turn away from doing them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. By the way, has that already happened? Has Israel embraced the everlasting covenant and joined themselves to the true and living God? The answer is no, but. The foundation has been laid in the person of Jesus Christ, because remember, we're going to be talking about that when we have communion. Jesus says that he says that this blood is spilled, that my body is broken and my blood is spilt for the new and the everlasting covenant. There is a new and an everlasting covenant that is available in the person of Jesus Christ. And look what the Lord says in verse six, my people have been like have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray. They have turned them away on the mountains. They've gone from mountain to hill. They have forgotten their resting place. Now, I want you to understand something. Obviously, the discipline has been profound and the captivity has been been horrible. But the Lord sees his people like Lost sheep who've been abused by her leaders and her captors. And so if you're thinking that God hates you because of your sin, you would be mistaken. God hates sin. But it isn't the wickedness and it isn't the difficulty and it isn't the rebellion and it isn't even the estrangement. The Lord sees you like sheep and he is the shepherd. And this is why Jesus refers to himself as the lost or, uh, as the good shepherd. And when you see that expression, they have gone from mountain to hill. It's an expression in the Hebrew language of the high places. In other words, 
from going from the mountain to the hill is going from one place of false worship to another place of false worship. The high places were the places where people would gather and they would honor the false gods and goddesses where they would engage in every kind of wild and wicked and perverse behavior because it was this perversion and this perverse behavior that seemed to to sort of connect them with reality. They would feel good. They would get high. They would get drunk. They would be engaged in every kind of sexual perversion because they didn't understand, embrace, or accept the presence of God. We have a a different way of, of, of saying that. They would go from one place of false worship to the next place of false worship. Just like people do now. They search from one failed religion to another failed religion, from one failed way of thinking to another failed way of thinking. And look what it says. They have forgotten their resting place. Where's Israel's resting place? Where's Judah's resting place? Where's Jerusalem's resting place? It isn't just simply physically the land of Israel. The promised land is the place where they were supposed to find rest. But really, ultimately, their rest was supposed to be in the Lord. So many people call me on my radio program. Which is the Sabbath day? Is it Saturday? Is it Sunday? Hey, you know what? The Sabbath day has never changed. It's always been from Friday at sundown to Saturday at sundown. The Sabbath is the Sabbath is the Sabbath is the Sabbath is the Sabbath. Well, what day should people rest? Paul wrote, one person esteems one day above another, and some people esteem all days the same. The Bible says that Christians don't have a Sabbath day, but they have a Sabbath God. You are invited not just simply to, to rest, and well, you should. You should take a day aside and you should rest. But the Bible invest, invites you to rest in the Lord and rest in the person of Jesus Christ. It means to lay your head on his Chest. It means to find your rest and your satisfaction and your confidence in the person of Jesus. You cease your labors. You cease striving because it's Christ. It's Jesus. It's Jesus himself who invites you to stop striving. Stop trying to work your way into heaven. Stop thinking that you can be good. He invites you to believe that he's good. He invites you to believe that he's the satisfying solution. He invites you to trust that God is completely satisfied with what Jesus has done. But they've forgotten their resting place. They've forgotten their resting place. Here's the idea. They forgot that God revealed to them his plans and his purposes and his promises. In Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, in that there's going to in David, that there's a Messiah who's coming, a Messiah who must come. And in order for the chosen people to be in the place where the Messiah comes, in order to provide a sacrifice for all of humanity, it's important that they find their resting place once again. And in verse 7 it says, all who found them have devoured them. Here's the idea. They're in exile. They're captive. Let's be blunt. Have the Israeli people been wicked? Yes. Have they rebelled against God? Yes. Have they fallen after false gods? Yes. And some people thought, because all of that's true, then I might as well take advantage of them. All who found them have devoured them, and their adversaries said, We have not offended, because they have sinned against the Lord, the habitation of justice, the Lord, the hope of their fathers. In other words, the people who oppressed and abused Israel used the excuse, This is exactly what God wants. God wants me to abuse you. And they were wrong. Why is that important to you? 
Because there are people who think because you've done wicked things and you've done wrong things and you've done sinful things and and a person will smugly say, well, you're just getting what you deserve. It is true that the way of the transgressor is hard. It is true that if you engage in wickedness, it is true that if you love money more than you love the Lord, if you love sexual relations more than you love the Lord, if you love drugs and alcohol more than you love the Lord, is it possible that you could find yourself in prison or in jail? Is it possible that your marriage could break up? Is it possible that your life can become very difficult very quickly and that this is just the reason that we need to kick each other? then you're misunderstanding what the Bible says. The way of the transgressor is hard. The verse is somewhat taken from Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 3. The persecutors and haters of Israel use the excuse, well, we're not guilty, we haven't offended God. The idea is, hey, look, It's not offensive to destroy a people who are no longer holy to God. Hey, guess what? They're no longer holy to God because of their wickedness and their rebellion. And God is saying, boy, you couldn't be more wrong. Because remember, part of the message of Jeremiah is I have unfinished business with these people. I have plans and purposes and promises that I want to fulfill in these people. And you might have a husband, a wife, a brother, a sister, a family member, or a friend who says, God's finished with you. God's done with you. You have sinned to beyond a place where you could ever be useful to God ever again. And the Lord basically says, I don't accept your excuse. The Lord, when it says... Because they have sinned against the Lord, the habitation of justice, the Lord, the hope of their fathers. Now, I want you to understand the meaning of that. The Lord is the habitation of justice. But here, the habitation of justice might also be an allusion to Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem is the holy city. Jerusalem is the place where God set his affection in contrast with the unholy city of Babylon. And so when we're asking and we're answering the question, does this land matter? Apparently it does. Does this city matter? Apparently it does. This is the place where God has set his affection. This is the place where God has established that this is the place where the promise is going to take place. And so when he says they have sinned against the Lord, the habitation of of his justice, it I think it means that when you destroyed Jerusalem. It was offensive to God. And that becomes part of the point. He says, move from the midst of Babylon, go out of the land of the Chaldeans And be like rams before the flocks. In other words, remember this is a warning. Just like what took place in Edom. And just like what took place with Elam. And Kedar. And Hatsor. And Damascus. Remember, he's giving this prophecy. And he's saying, this is what the future holds for Babylon. Make a run for it. Get out of Dodge. Let me see if I can make it as clear as I possibly can. If you knew that an asteroid was going to come in six days and completely destroy Denver in a fiery explosion that would be equal to 20 Hiroshima bombs. Now, it's not, by the way. I'm not predicting that a fiery asteroid is going to come from outer space and destroy Denver. We're using it as a hypothetical. If that were going to happen, we had some sort of word from God and it was a prophecy and it came literally from the mouth of God. How many of you would want to stay here? Oh, I don't see any hands. That's good. That's good. You understand that when something is under the judgment of God, the best possible thing that you can do is leave. And that's part of the point that he's making. The Lord warns the people to flee Babylon before the judgment comes. In the latter days, 
in the short future or in the long future? Move from the midst of Babylon, go out of the land of the Chaldeans and be like rams before the flocks. What does that mean? Here's the metaphor. Again, it's a Middle Eastern expression. It's the idea like goats pushing and shoving to be at the very front of the sheepfold. Imagine if you if you if you've ever worked with livestock, there are a personality types that try to get to the front of the herd. We we have a, a different expression. Oddly enough, the Septuagint translates the he goats serpents or dragons. Think teenagers at a Justin Bieber concert desperately trying to get to the front of the line so that they can be first in line at the concert. Think Apple people who will camp out for an entire 24 hours so that they can be the first in line to get an iPhone 5. That's what we're talking about. It's the people who are making every effort to be at the very front so they can be the first out the door. For behold, I will raise and cause to come up against Babylon an assembly of great nations from the north, and they shall array themselves against her. For from there she shall be captured. Their arrows shall be like those of an expert warrior. None shall return in vain. What? What's happening? God is bringing a great company of nations to devastate the land. And by the way, Revelation 18 is in part taken from these verses. In other words, there's a group, a coalition of nations that come from the north country. They array themselves against Babylon. They are going to be captured. In other words, the weapons of their warfare are going to ensure its extinction. And Chaldea shall become plunder. All who plunder her shall be satisfied, says the Lord. In other words, the war that God will initiate with the Medes and the Persians against the Babylonians is a done deal. It's not even going to be a contest. And so then he talks about the fall of Babylon. Because you were glad, because you rejoiced, you destroyers of my heritage, because you have grown fat like a heifer threshing grain and you bellow like bulls. So, again, why is Babylon being judged? To allow freedom for the people who are captive. Why is Babylon being judged? Because you were glad. I want you to think about that. Does God use Babylon as an instrument of discipline and judgment against Judah and Jerusalem? Yeah. Well, what's wrong with that? Then why shouldn't they be glad? Because they were more happy to inflict pain and bondage on the children of Israel. And someone might argue, well, again, God uses Babylon as the instrument of his judgment. The answer is yes, but God reprimands the people of Babylon for enjoying their role way too much. You probably heard a mom and a dad say, This is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. And you don't believe it even for a minute. But it's true. Where in pain and agony, a mom or a dad knows they have to discipline their child. A grandma or a grandpa knows they have to discipline their child. They know that the consequences of no discipline is not going to work so in grievous consideration they exercise the discipline what babylon is being judged for is because they absolutely loved their role it's one thing to have to discipline someone and it's another thing to relish the idea and so when he uses the metaphor of because you've grown fat like a heifer threshing grain Jeremiah uses, again, a Middle Eastern metaphor of, a, of, a, little, of a, a, a young calf who's in the middle of the field, threshing grain, just going crazy, just eating everything in sight, eating until they're full. We have a different metaphor in our culture. We might say it's like a kid in a candy store. What happens to the kid in the candy store? All of you who saw Willy Wonka, you know, you see all of this chocolate castles and and candy cane palaces and the kid goes in and he has no idea. He's just going to eat and eat until he is 
you know, he has some sort of sugar shock. That's the point. You bellow like bulls. There are nations who feel like they can curse Israel and face no consequence. You bellow like bulls. Just recently, the president of Iran once again called those uncivilized Zionists. In other words, there are people, there are leaders around the world who bellow because of their deep hatred, their profound animosity against the Jews and the people of Israel. They bellow. In other words, who who are the people who bellow like bulls? These are the nations who feel like they can curse Israel and face no consequence. But the nation that curses the Jews, the Bible says in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, they run the risk themselves of being cursed. And once again, the principle is found in Galatians 6-7. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a person sows, that they will also reap. And the point is like the continual pounding of a drum. It's like the continual hammering of the, of the hammer on the anvil. God's judgments are the earned consequences of human actions and attitudes. And so in verse 12 it says, Your mother shall be deeply ashamed. She who bore you shall be ashamed. Behold, the least of the nations shall be a wilderness, a dry land and a desert. What does that mean? Your mother shall be deeply ashamed. Ashamed. Who is your mother in this sentence, in this verse? It's Babylon. In other words, the instruction that the Lord has given, your mother shall be deeply ashamed. Who is your mother? It's Babylon. What does Babylon produce? If Jerusalem is the city of God and it's supposed to produce the children of God and Babylon is the city of man, what does Babylon produce? People who are in rebellion and disobedience against God, who are antagonistic towards God, who resist God, who persecute the people of God. And so when it says she who bore you shall be ashamed, behold, the least of the nation shall be a wilderness. These are all of the satellite countries that fall under the auspices and control and sovereignty of Babylon. So what does this mean? Babylon has given birth. To every false system of religion that sets itself in opposition to the plan of God, to the purposes of God, to the promises of God. And so every false system that denies that Jesus Christ is the Lord, that he's the satisfying solution to the problem of sin. That you're saved by grace through faith. That somehow you can work your way to heaven. Or that if you do the right deeds or if you think the right thoughts that you're going to be fine. It says in verse 13, because the wrath of the Lord, she shall not be inhabited, but she shall be wholly desolate. Everyone who goes by Babylon shall be horrified and hiss at all of her plagues. By the way, Babylon right now is partially being rebuilt. But there was a time from the time that Alexander the Great destroyed it in 320 B.C. All up until the time, probably after the dismantling of the Ottoman Empire, this was one great, vast wilderness. Everyone who goes to Babylon shall be horrified and hiss at all her plagues. And you've got to understand something. Remember? Babylon is the most powerful, the most beautiful, instrumental city in the world. The place where human beings invented government, the place where people invented writing, where they invented law, where they invented art, where they invented culture, and it is gone. It is the sum and the substance of everything that human beings can think Apart from God. Want. Apart from God. Treasure. Apart from God. Desire. Apart from God. And so here's what the Lord does. 
He promises a judgment on man-made thinking and man-made technology that sets itself in opposition to God. Verse 14, put yourselves in array against Babylon all around. All you who bend the bow, shoot at her, spare no arrows, for she has sinned against the Lord. The picture is the Medes and the Persians coming, eventually the Greeks coming, surrounding Babylon, initiating judgment. The Lord will use two principal powers to humble Babylon, the Medes, the Persians, and later the Greeks. Why? She sinned against the Lord. 15. Shout against her all around. She has given her hand. Her foundation has fallen. Her walls are thrown down. For it is the vengeance of the Lord. Take vengeance on her as she has done so do to her. And so here's the expression. Shout against her all around. In other words, don't have mercy. She has given her hand. What does that mean? It's an idiomatic expression in the Hebrew. The moment she extends her hand, it's 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 an, an idiomatic expression, which means surrender in our culture and society. When we say put up your hands, this is the universal symbol of what I give up. I give up in this particular passage. She has given her hand. It's the declaration that she says, I've surrendered. I give up. Her foundations have fallen. Her walls are thrown down. For it is the vengeance of the Lord. Take vengeance on her as she has done so due to her. Remember, God is not mocked. What has she done? She has swallowed the empires around her. What has she done? She's captured people. Killed people. Enslaved them. Exiled them. Her walls are thrown down. By the way, Cyrus took the city in 539 B.C. with almost no violence. Herodotus reports that Darius, having become the master of the place, destroys the wall. He tears down the gates. For Cyrus had done neither the one nor the other when he took Babylon. That, according to Herodotus, Darius's purpose would not be to make Babylon an utter desolation, but to make the, the city dependent on him for protection. In other words, he tears down the defenses... So that the city will be completely dependent upon him. Alexander has no such feelings. He will level it to the ground. He will destroy it down to the last dirt clod. And again. This is no ordinary war. Take vengeance on her. Do what needs to be done to her. This is the vengeance of the Lord. Remember what the Bible says? Make room for wrath. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. In the book of Romans, when Paul writes, make room for wrath, it was Paul's way of saying, if you don't believe anything else, believe this. There is a God, and he will take vengeance in verse 16, it says, cut off the sower from Babylon and him who handles the sickle at harvest time. For fear of the oppressing sword, everyone shall turn to his own people and everyone shall flee to his own land. Cutting off the sower from from Babylon means there's no more planting him who handles the sickle. There's no more harvesting. In other words, the normal things that you do, you plant, you reap. Because people will need groceries for the next year. There is no planting. There's no reaping. There's no groceries because there's no stores. Because there's no people. The people in Babylon from foreign lands, whether voluntary or slaves or exiles, are going to use this opportunity to escape. And then look what it says, the restoration of Israel in verse 17. Israel is like scattered sheep. The lions have driven him away. First, the king of Assyria devoured him. Now, at last, this Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has broken his bones. Jeremiah uses the image of a scattered flock and a lion. The lions have driven him away. Which lions? The lion of Assyria has ravaged the northern kingdom of Israel. 
The lion of Babylon has destroyed the southern kingdom. Now God will punish Babylon like he did Assyria. Assyria fell to Babylon and the Median Confederation, by the way, in 609 B.C., there was a guy named Tiglath-Pileser who devastated the northern kingdom, destroyed, deported the people, destroyed the social structure. Samaria falls in 722. They basically take the whole population of northern Israel, transport them to Assyria, and then relocate a new population in northern Israel. These become the half-breed people called the Samaritans later on that you read about in the New Testament. And so, it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will punish the king of Babylon and his land, as I have punished the king of Assyria. By the way, How was the Assyrian army destroyed? Who remembers? No. The good guess. Partially, Assyria came to Jerusalem. And they knocked at the door of the gates. And God sent an angel and wiped out a hundred thousand plus Assyrians in a single night. Non-Christian scholars speculate, well, the bubonic plague must have swept through them to kill that many people that quickly. People who aren't so skeptical say, the angel of the Lord came and wiped them out in a single night. So who killed the Assyrians? Well, you're right, the Babylonians did eventually. Because the 100,000 plus Assyrians who are killed by the angel of the Lord... They lick their wounds, they go back home, they survive for another 50 years, and then a confederation of the Medes and the Babylonians completely destroy the Assyrian nation. A guy named Nabopolassar, who was the governor of Babylon, he rebelled, he becomes independent, and it is his grandson who's named Nebuchadnezzar, who will become the central figure in the book of Daniel And the statue of gold and the breasts of silver and the thighs of bronze. In verse 19 it says, but I will bring back Israel to his home and he shall feed on Carmel and Bashan. His soul shall be satisfied on Mount Ephraim and Gilead. The point? Babylon's going to be judged. Israel's coming home. Israel's coming home. And look, it's not symbolic. It's not allegorical. It's real. They're coming back to Carmel and Bashan, Mount Ephraim and Gilead. They're going to feed their flocks peacefully and safely. Note the geographical references. Ephraim will return, take both sides of the Jordan River. This is roughly from the Dead Sea to the Sea of Galilee. More geography is given in Ezekiel chapter 48. You can look there when you have time. In those days, it says in verse, in those days and in that time, says the Lord, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought, but there shall be none. And the sins of Judah, but they shall not be found, for I will pardon those who I preserve. What? Now I'm going to forgive them. What? Yeah. I'm going to let them go from Babylon and they're going to return. Do they return historically? Yes. Have they returned again even in the last 60 years? Yes. Look what it says. The prophet peers into the deep lens of human history in the past and then he sees a time. Look what it says. In those days and in that time. What days? What time? In the latter days, in the latter days, there's going to come a time when God, look what it says. He will wipe away the sins of Judah. He will establish his new covenant with them. Why? The Lord will pardon those he preserves. Why? He's preserved you. And pardoned you so he could have friendship with you and fellowship with you. He has forgiven you and redeemed you and reconciled you. This is what 
Paul had in mind when he wrote in the book of Romans. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he writes that amazing statement in Romans chapter 8 where he basically says. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the spirit. And then he goes on and he basically says when you come to the end of the chapter. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword as it is written? For your sake we were killed all day long. We were accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor death nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God who is in Christ Jesus. The Lord will pardon those he preserves there is a pardon and the children of Israel return and you know what happens eventually Jesus is going to be born but then Jesus is going to be not accepted but rejected the Jews are scattered once again they return to Israel once again But as he peers into the deep lens of the future, he says, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought. But there shall be none. And the sins of Judah. But they shall not be found. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom, united. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom, forgiven. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom, restored. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom, forgiven and reconciled in the Messiah. Has that happened yet? No. Will it happen? I want you to think this through. If everything else happened in the book of Jeremiah, do you really think he's just going to get it wrong right when you come to the end of the book? Okay, we're done for now. Let's pray. We're going to have communion. Heavenly Father, man, that's a lot of work, Lord. There's so much that you've revealed to us. There's so much we need to know. But Lord, if we forget everything else, Lord, I pray that we would remember. For I will pardon Those who I preserve. Lord, for many of us, you've spared our lives so that you could forgive us. Lord, so many times we've tried to drive ourselves off of a cliff. And for whatever reason, Lord, you allowed us to land safely. With minimal harm. You saved us, Lord. Redeemed us. Forgave us. So that we could experience real friendship and fellowship and relationship with you. And so, Lord, we pray right now that you would just prepare our hearts for communion. That, Lord, for those of us who know you and love you. You've already established the covenant. You've made good your promise. That Jesus Christ is both King and Messiah and Lord for all of those who will turn from their sin and embrace him fully and in faith. Lord, we pray that the promises that you made to Israel for its redemption and restoration would happen very, very soon. Because, Lord, we know that in Messiah you've made one new man, both Jew and Gentile, alive in Christ. So, Lord, cause us to prepare our hearts right now as we consider the covenant that you've entered into with us in the person of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.